Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Romans 12, 11. These are the words of the Apostle Paul writing the church in Rome, but also to you and I. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words. I pray that you would teach us today from your word in our spirit to be the people that you've called us to be. Thank you for the privilege of allowing us in your presence today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Have you ever heard about the longest traffic jam in history? You may have felt that you were in it. <clears throat> it was in China, and it was 62 miles long, and it lasted for 12 days. I think the second place winner is Boyd Road 10 minutes before school starts every morning. <laughs> <clears throat> but in China's traffic jam, cars stopped moving at all for hours and even for days. Some drivers got out and started playing cards with other drivers. Many of them got out of their vehicles and took naps on the pavement because they were just stuck. Let me ask you, are you spiritually stuck today? Do you ever wonder where all of your passion and fervor has gone? Have you been distracted by so many other things in life and the years have gone by and you find yourself spiritually lethargic? Well, today we continue with our series uh, from season two of The Chosen. And this morning's message is entitled, The Power of Passion. The Power of Passion. Here's what I wanted to say. Last week, Chris preached uh, from this series as well. And uh, we were not here. Now, it was his Sunday to preach. Uh, he was scheduled to preach anyway. I know he did a great job. Uh, last week, it gave uh, Cherry and I the opportunity to go down and see our daughter, Gabrielle. You remember Gabrielle? She grew up here. And uh, she's in the Air Force down at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, at least one of her parents is having uh, separation anxieties. And so, but I'm feeling better. So <laughs> we both missed her and we had a great time getting to, to see her. Um, uh, today, as we continue though with our series, I'll, I'll be honest, like everyone, I'm human. I sometimes struggle with my own passion, my own zeal. And for most of us, we struggle from time to time in life, and perhaps for some of us, we struggle for long periods of time where we just lose that enthusiasm, that energy, that zeal. I watched children on the playground out here. We had a massive crowd yesterday for Upward Football. I hope you got to be here to see that. It's a beautiful morning. Kids had a great time. The grass is green and the field looks great. And it was just one of those fantastic mornings where we had so many here. And I watched those kids on the football field just running everywhere. And I end up saying what most of you end up saying when we see that as we stand there calm and still or sit quietly. Oh, I wish I had half their energy, we would say. Sometimes we 
get tired physically and it translates somehow spiritually into our life. And so as we calm down physically, we calm down spiritually as well. But it is not designed in scripture to be that way at all. To the opposite, Paul says, even though he's wasting away outwardly as he was, that spiritually he was being renewed day by day and his zeal was increasing in the Lord. And that's hard to imagine with Paul because he was pretty zealous even from the beginning. We'll see that in a bit. But for my own zeal and for you and I, I think it's usually one of two reasons or in one of two areas that we struggle with our zeal. And the first is this. We are challenged with a lack of zeal. Now, that's not the case with everybody, but it may be the case with you that sometimes you are challenged with a lack of zeal. In our passage for today, Romans chapter 12, verse 11, Paul says, never be lacking in zeal. That's the first thing he says. Secondly, he says, but keep your spiritual fervor. And the third thing he says is serving the Lord. All three of those things go hand in hand, but they are separate and they're very important. First, he says, never be lacking in zeal. You may say to yourself physically or to others, I just am not the age I used to be. I can't run around everywhere or anywhere. You're lucky to be sitting up right now, you think. You're just happy you woke up this morning. <laughs> and physically, you may feel that way, but spiritually, you have a choice. You cannot say on judgment day to God, well, God, I just got older. I just didn't have that enthusiasm. I didn't have enough energy, spiritually speaking, that I once had. I know that's a lie and it's not true because God's word says this. Never be lacking in zeal. This is Paul's way of saying, you can choose to have zeal in the Lord. And the command is that you are to have it. Not an option. It doesn't say if you feel like it. If you feel like it, have a lot of zeal. If you don't, it's okay. I never, you'll never see that in scripture anywhere. Never be lacking in zeal. This is coming from a guy who spent much of his ministry in prison, eating horrible food under terrible conditions, sleeping on a cold slab stone floor. This is coming from a guy who had a physical problem and it was probably his eyesight so that he was legally blind and it hindered him all the time. Every day of his life, he was aware of it. This is coming from a guy who had been shipwrecked and beaten nearly to death on multiple occasions, even stoned and snake bitten. And yet he, in his aged years, says this, never be lacking in zeal. If he can do it, you can do it. Some of the most powerful people and most zealous people I have ever known in my life were wheelchair bound. If they can do it, you can do it. My mother, toward the end of her life, was in a place where she could not even take care of herself, but she was spiritually zealous to the day she died. If she could do it, you can do it. And so could I. Never be lacking in zeal, Paul says. But keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord. The dictionary defines zeal as, quote, great energy. I like that right there. <laughs> great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. Now, the opposite of zeal is apathy, half-hearted, 
indifferent, lukewarm, lethargic, or, and this is a good strong biblical word, sluggard. <laughs> I was telling somebody after the service, the first service, I said, you know, <clears throat> it's an interesting word. You can't ever use it as a compliment. <laughs> If you hear the word sluggard from someone referring to you, you know they're probably not trying to lift you up. <clears throat> sluggard. Derek Kinder, in his commentary on Proverbs, identifies four signs of the sluggard. A sluggard is an idle, slothful person. See if you identify with any of these. Not yourself, certainly, but somebody you know. <laughs> Number one, the sluggard will not begin things. He intends to, but never quite gets around to it. The sluggard always says, you know, I'm going to start that next week. Or tomorrow, I'm going to begin that diet tomorrow. Or I'm going to start that project. I, you, they talk about it and talk about it and talk about it, but they never start anything. It's just all talk. That's what the sluggard does. By inches, minutes, and days, his opportunity slips away. In Proverbs chapter 6 verse 9 it says it this way How long will you lie there you sluggard? <laughs> that sounds like my mom. <laughs> How long will you lie there you sluggard? Said every parent to every teenager. When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep. A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. So back in the day, that, when that was written 3,000 years ago, if you didn't work, you didn't eat. You didn't plant, you didn't harvest. And so it says, poverty will come on you like a band. There were no government programs. Nobody sent in, sent in a check to the people of their country. If you didn't eat, you just, uh, excuse me, if you didn't work, you just starved. Number two, he will not finish things. Maybe you know somebody that doesn't start things. They just never get around to doing anything. Or maybe you know somebody sitting near you or in your chair who starts things but never finishes them. You just can't seem to finish anything to save your life. Your house is just filled with half-done projects. Many go into your your man cave, your garage, or your shop, and all the projects that are half-finished in your life. Ladies, your drawers are filled with half-finished quilts or, or blankets or crochet. Half-finished. We become masters at starting things that we never, ever finish. How many half a book have you read? I can't even sit through a movie anymore. You know, I, I, five minutes on YouTube and I'm done. <laughs> you know, I watch a little clip here or there. Why well, watch a whole movie when I can see the highlights on YouTube? <laughs> we don't finish things anymore. So that's a problem because it translates into our spiritual life as well. How many times have we said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, all right, I'm going to write this Bible study. Or I'm gonna I'm gonna teach this Sunday school class or what whatever, and we just or I'm gonna go to Sunday school and we go to three weeks and that's it. 
Or I'm going to go to this Bible study. It's really good, this men's Bible study, this ladies' Bible study, and you go for two weeks. And every one of those teachers will tell you the attendance does like this. There's always that bell curve. How many unfinished projects do you have in your life? Proverbs chapter 19, verse 24 says, the sluggard, there's that word again, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He will not even bring it back to his mouth. <laughs> wow. Now that's lazy. Sticks his hand in the dish for food. He doesn't even brought. You know, it's a picture of a baby on YouTube again. And, <clears throat> you know, that, that funny little meme of the baby, he's eating his, his food and he falls asleep there in his high chair. Well, spiritually, that may be you or me. Number three, he will not face things. The sluggard comes to believe his own excuses. Let me say that again. The slugger begins to believe his own excuses, rationalizes his laziness, and makes a habit of the easy choice. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4 says it this way. Again, another Proverbs. A sluggard, same word, does not plow in season. So at harvest time, he looks but finds nothing. I love this verse. This is, <laughs> this is how we are. This is how we are in life. I'm the same way. We're all guilty. He talks about somebody who doesn't bother to go out and plant his field. But comes harvest time, he still goes out there looking to see if anything came up. So what it says. So at harvest time, he looks. What's he even looking for? If you don't plant anything, you're not going to get anything. We do nothing and still want results. We need to face the reality of the truth. Do you want to see a harvest in your life? Do you want to see a harvest in your church? Do you want to see a harvest in our nation? Stop complaining. Stop blaming. And start sowing seeds for harvest. Kinder concludes, The sluggard is no freak, but as often as not, an ordinary man who has made too many excuses, too many refusals, and too many, too many postponements. It has all been as imperceptible and as pleasant as falling asleep. Here's what he's, I, I think what he's saying is this. If Satan can get you and I to just start, but not finish. If he can get you and I just to talk about it, but never do it. If he can get us to lose steam spiritually, to not do what we're supposed to do in our family or in our personal life or in our church, then he's got us. A week turns into a month, turns into a year, turns into a decade, and then a lifetime. And what have we done in the kingdom? Now, I don't want to be overly critical or to overgeneralize, but for the churches in our nation, and I'm not the judge, but for the churches in our nation generally, are we spiritually asleep? I found it so much easier to do nothing except blame the liberals. And I, I enjoy doing that. <laughs> to have no personal zeal, but to criti criticize the inaction of our government. And that's fun too, because they... I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> to be lulled into spiritual apathy by the lie that our efforts don't matter. 
or that our zeal can change nothing. Listen to me. You and I are powerful because the Holy Spirit resides in us. Do not believe the lie that Satan gives you through this world that your, your existence doesn't really matter that much. It can, it should, it must, and in God's eyes, it does. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says it this way, crippled Paul, blind Paul, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There is something God wants you to do. He's already planned it. When did he plan it? It says in advance, in advance. Well, that's Now, for me, that's 20 minutes ago. <laughs> for you, maybe it's last week. For God, I think it's a little further in advance than that. Before you were born, before this world even existed, God already had plans for you. Don't miss it. Don't waste it. I can tell you whatever plans it are is, they're good plans. Wayne Cordario, a pastor of a church of over 11,000 in Hawaii, gives an interesting illustration about zeal. He said, a college freshman named Smitty became the field goal kicker for the football team. At the end of a game, he was called on to, to go in and kick a game-winning, hopefully, field goal. But Smitty wanted to make his mark, so he changed the play during the huddle. <clears throat> Coach had no idea. <clears throat> the ball was hiked directly to him, and he, instead of kicking it, he started running. And immediately he was clobbered as he fumbled the football, and it popped right out from under him. One of the guys on the other team picked up the ball and began running toward the end zone on the other end to make a touchdown. Well, everybody on the team scrambled in a mad panic to catch that guy. None of them could. And suddenly, one of the football players sprouted out faster than all the other players, ran down the field and managed to, to tackle the guy. And the guy who did the tackling was that skinny guy named Smitty. Well, the assistant coach was stunned as he saw that, turned to the head coach and remarked, did you know that Smitty had wheels like that? He beat our best, best athletes and made the tackle. The head coach replied, <clears throat> being less impressed. I'll tell you why. The other guys were running because they were supposed to. Smitty was running because his life depended on it. <laughs> you and I need to run like our life depends on it. Now our salvation is secure. But there's some things that God wants us to do, and he wants us to do it with enthusiasm and with zeal. Do you do that? The second problem that we have, the second challenge that we have, isn't that we lack zeal. We have it. Some of you have it in abundance. Oh, I see it on Facebook. <laughs> the challenge that we have is a misplaced zeal. Lots of energy expended on pointless things. We have become spiritually passive-aggressive. It's easy to become overzealous about the wrong things and overly passive about the right things. <clears throat> B 
Biblically, your life will be defined not merely by your zeal, but where you focus your zeal. I know it's hard to imagine, but I promise you on Judgment Day, politics will never even come up. So many of the things that are, now I'm not saying that those are worthless things, and I'll get to that in a minute, but so many of the things that we spend so much time, your ball team, your college team, your NFL team, won't come up on Judgment Day. God doesn't care who wins the Super Bowl. He doesn't care. I mean, maybe you're one of those people. You spend all of your time thinking and talking about that thing. You go to the games. You, man, you take your shirt off. You paint your body. Put the team logo right on your big belly. I see those guys on TV. I'm assuming they're not sober. <laughs> but they sure are zealous. In Romans chapter 10, verse 1, <clears throat> Paul says it this way. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous. There's that word. They're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Paul is brokenhearted here. He loves these guys. And he says, man, I tell you, because there's, there's heresy going through the church already, people trying to lure them back into Judaism. And he said, you know, they got the energy. They're focused. They're passionate. They're zealous. But it's not based on knowledge. Knowledge being the truth about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he is the chosen Messiah, the Son of God, God incarnate. They don't believe that. And so all of their efforts, he realizes, as faithful Jews are for nothing. They skipped eating those pork chops all their life for nothing. All of those laws and rules didn't get them any closer to heaven, Paul realized. He, he, Paul, of all people, had experienced misplaced zeal. <clears throat> he was once addressing the Sanhedrin, the, the, the religious leaders, the, 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 the Jewish theological teachers of the day. In Acts chapter 22, he says this to them. This is his testimony he's giving them. It's beautiful. He begins by saying, I am a Jew, born of Tarsus and Cilicia, and brought up in this city, in Jerusalem, under Gamaliel, who was a famous Jewish teacher. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for, there's that word, just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. Also, and also, as also the high priest and all the council can testify, I even obtained letters from them to, to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Here's what he's saying to the council. He says, guys, I was one of you. In fact, everybody there knew him, worked with him. He says, guys, it's me. There's not anybody here that's more zealous than I was, passionate about their faith. I was the Jew of Jews. I was the, the, the Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm the one that got you guys to give me letters because the persecution that I was, I was undergoing here against the Christians wasn't enough. I wanted to persecute them in Damascus as well. And you gave me letters. I'm, I'm that guy. I'm Saul. It's me. So don't tell me about passion, he said to them. Here's where he said it all went different. 
Verse 6, about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, you and I know the testimony. That was the voice of Christ. And this is the moment of his conversion that changed his life forever. Paul admitting to them that he was zealous as a Jew, but his zeal was misplaced. Instead of persecuting Christ, he should have been embracing him, which he is now doing in that conversation. Paul was not alone. There were so many others in that world, in that nation that were zealous. In fact, there was a group of people called the Zealots. That's, that's what they called them, Zealots, because they were zealous. Now, the Zealots had a primary goal, and it was military. They wanted the Romans out of their country. Wanted to get rid of them. Interestingly, some of the zealots ended up being disciples of Jesus, which I find extraordinary that he used them at all. I think he wanted to take their energy and rechannel it for the kingdom of God, realizing their potential because they were so zealous in their faith. But no, make no doubt about it, their intentions were military. They wanted to kill as many Romans as possible. That was their goal. So when Jesus came along, they didn't know what to make of him. They wanted him to be that guy, that military leader to rule. And to be fair, I don't blame the zealots. You know, I'm not a military guy. But imagine, if you would, with me for a moment, that in World War II, Adolf Hitler succeeded in his plan and took over the United States of America. And we all spoke German right now. Whoa. Well, I can tell you, you already know this. Had Adolf Hitler and his troops made it to the shores of the United States, they wouldn't have gotten very far. They grossly underestimated how many guns we own. I guarantee you they never would have taken over Texas. They would have, well, I'll just stop right there. And so I understand the zealots, the, the Romans have taken over and they want to get rid of the Romans. But in the end, God had greater plans for Israel than military takeover. He wanted to establish his eternal kingdom through Christ. And they didn't get that. Simon, who is one of the disciples, there were two Simons, by the way, Simon Peter and Simon the Zealot. And he was called the Zealot because he was a Zealot. Jesus called him. And he struggled, no doubt, with misplaced zeal. Now, we don't know all the conversations he had with Christ or all the details around his calling, but we can make some pretty good guesses. Simon's goal was political independence. His goals were militant. Um, in the series, The Chosen, Jesus one day calls Simon to follow him. Simon sees a tremendous miracle. He is convinced that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, but he doesn't fully understand what is involved in this willingness to be a servant of Jesus. Watch this scene. Your order trained you to be fearless, no? No, Lord, but God to the death. What I did with your brother, it's not the last of the trouble I intend to cause. You are Messiah, aren't you? 
Yes. I will do anything you ask. I ask you to understand the nature of my mission, Simon. Yes. How? Hmm. How indeed? It's not so easy with distracted humans, hmm? I have trained for years for this. I am ready to execute your mission today. We'll see. Show me your weapon. <coughs> Impressive. This is something. Didn't see that coming. You have no use for that. I have a better sword. You'll see. We have much to discuss. Just be patient. You've been quite a week. Without my secret dagger, why do you need someone like me? I have everything I need. But I wanted you. Why? You're not alone in misunderstanding. But not to worry. I'm preparing something to share with the world. For now, wanting you by my side will have to be enough. No one buys their way into our group because of special skills, Simon. Rabbi. Yes, Simon. After what you did at the pool during your High Holy Feast day, there may be some who might try to stop you. Hmm. Even some from my former order, especially if they find out you have a different mission. And what are you going to do? Stop them? Well, I would be more likely to if you hadn't thrown my secret dagger in the river. <laughs> well, if that day comes, I guess we'll find out. Now, the better sword that he was talking about is the sword of what? The sword of the Spirit. Yeah, see, he had no idea. Um, but he would. He, he would get it in time. Paul was writing to the church in Galatia in chapter 4, verse 15, and he said this to the, to the Galatians. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul was probably blind. He said, you would have done anything to help me. What has happened to that joy, that trust? Verse 17, those people are zealous to win you over. That's the heretics. But for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. And he talks, the whole thing is about zeal here. He said, they, wanted, they want to take your zeal and turn it for them. Now listen to me. I promise you, every day, this week, today, every day of your life, listen to me, young people, Every day of your life, there are those that want to take your zeal and use it for their cause. Your zeal for Christ. 
They will take it, rob it from you, and divert it to their cause. Don't let them. And that's what had happened to the Galatians. He said, you guys were willing to, to give me your eyes. And now what has happened? People came along, gave you some false doctrine, and you abandoned me and went with them so quickly. Now, as a follower of Christ, let me advise you as to what you can do. Let me be specific to you in this odd time in which we find ourselves politically. You can be patriotic. There's nothing wrong with that. You can be patriotic. As a Christian, as a believer in Christ, as a person zealous for Christ, you can still be patriotic to your country, as I am. You can and should vote your conscience and your convictions, as I do. You can support the candidates of your choice. And certainly you can be disappointed and frustrated with the injustices in our world and in our nation. I did it again. I turned on the news this week and was mad for two days. Heard a speech I didn't like. Just robbed me of my joy. Wow. How quickly we lose our zeal for the Lord because we're distracted and mad about something else. How quickly we turn into one of the zealots of the first century. But being disappointed in the condition of our world and, being, and becoming politically active is not the same and is not in the same league or the same realm as being zealous for God and his kingdom. You can be patriotic. You can be zealous for your country. But if that patriotism and that zealousness for your country or anything else is more important to you than your zeal for God, then you have been misled. You're wasting your energy on something that's less important. It's not either or, but God would say, Christ would say, your zeal for him must come first. Had Simon continued as a zealot, had done what he intended to do, used that dagger or whatever weapon he had against the Roman guards, which by the way actually happened. There was a big rebellion or big revolt. They were all killed. Tens of thousands of Jews were executed. The Romans cut down virtually every tree in Israel for mass crucifixions. And that was the end of it. Simon would have died too for nothing. Do you know how long it took the Israelites, the Jews, to become independent? It, when this conversation took place with Jesus, you know how long it would actually be when they would actually gain their political independence? 1948. It wasn't going to happen. His life and his death would have been wasted. Instead, he, inv he invested his energy into the kingdom, something that is eternal, everlasting. How many... How many countries have come and gone? How many superpowers? How many nations have come and gone? And yet, the word of God stands forever. The kingdom is still there. As I've told you before, America's greatest problem isn't even political. It is spiritual. It isn't economical or social. It is spiritual. And so our greatest solution is going to be a spiritual solution. And yes, that means revival. On September the 11th of 2001, I was standing in my bedroom. This has been a while. It's been 20 years now this week. 
So I didn't have a cell phone. I, uh, cell phones had been invented, but uh, a lot of people didn't have them. I think I had a pager, a pocket pager. <laughs> it was worthless. <laughs> and um, I turned on the TV. I just had, so I had not, nobody called. So I turned on my TV just out of random. I don't know why. And when I, when I turned it on, every news station had the same story and the same images live from New York. I saw one of the Twin Towers and it was on fire, smoke billowing from it. And I remember standing there thinking, where's the other tower? There was only one. Now I've been to New York and I had been to the Twin Towers. I had stood there at the base of the Twin Towers. They were truly massive, by the way. It's impossible to really describe the scale of those two skyscrapers unless you were standing between them. There's this big courtyard, or was a big courtyard, right there between them with this huge globe of the world. And you could look up, and as far as the eye could see, you could see those amazing towers. And so to look at it and see only one standing there, my mind could not absorb the thought that one of them had already fallen and didn't exist anymore. I thought, well, maybe it's behind it or something, but I knew better. I knew, I knew how they were arranged. And as I watched, Terry came in, and together we watched as that second tower collapsed. Something interesting happened in the days to come, though, and it came up in the news a, a little bit this week, is that for a short time, our nation was unified. In fact, there was actually some repenting that went on there was a, a, a spiritual movement that was beginning in our country as we were brought to our knees. We realized we weren't all that invincible after all and that we weren't all that different after all and that we were united against this terrible attack. Now yesterday, interestingly enough in the news, I saw this, I will say a feeble effort, but there was at least some effort. People were trying in their speeches, et cetera, et cetera, not to sound divisive. In fact, they talked about that word unity a great deal in their speeches. And the news media wasn't as nasty as they normally are and will be today and tomorrow and from now on. But for one day, there was this kind of, okay, let's, let's put aside the animosity for one day. Let's be unified for one day. And it's a challenge. Part of the challenge that we have in our nation is that our zeal, our people are zealous. It's just that our zeal is in going in so many directions. Everybody wants this or that or this or this cause or that cause over there and to unite us. And our zeal going in one direction is quite a sight to behold, but it is a rarity. What is needed, though, for us to come together as a country truly to be unified is for us to focus our zeal on what it once was with our forefathers, to bring this country into a right relationship with their God, to bring revival to this land so that we are united in a desire to love our God, to put our hope in deliverance in Jesus Christ, not from anything else, not from politics or militaries or budgets or anything else, but from Christ and Him alone. In the weeks to come, revival is coming to First Baptist Church and hopefully to Azel and to our nation. But it begins with you. 
Where has your focus been this week? What issues have distracted you? What problems have lulled you into apathy? Listen to me. In the spirit of Christ, there is great power in passion. And I believe God wants you and I to change this city in Christ's name. And God wants to do that through you. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would help us. For those of us who have struggled with apathy, we don't mean to, we don't recognize it, but the truth is, spiritually, we are as tired as we are physically. And that strength, that enthusiasm, that zeal for you has diminished. We pray less. We read the Bible less. We come to church less frequently. We think about you less often. It has faded. Oh, Father, forgive us. May we come to you today and renew that zeal. Would you renew a right spirit within us? We know it is pointless for us to pray that you would bring this country to revival if we ourselves are not willing to do that. Today, Father, forgive us where we've had zeal, but we wasted it on some dumb sports event or football team or politician or whatever it is. Not that those things are not important, but they don't compare to your kingdom and none of them will come up on judgment day. But our faith in Christ will. What we've been doing for you and your kingdom will. Father, I pray that we take the energy that you give us, that we would redirect it and focus it together on Christ and him alone. Your will be done. Your kingdom come in us. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you right now to come before your God and say, God, return to me the joy of my salvation. Place a fire in me through your spirit. May revival begin in me even now. I challenge you to come and get on your knees and come to your God. He's waiting. No one's looking around. Would everyone stand? As you stand, as you pray, right now, you come.